You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. The book of Revelation, chapter 3. Of course, the book of Revelation, as I've told you, is the only book that comes with its own divine outline. Chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus, speaking to John, our author, tells him to write, therefore, the things that you have seen. That's chapter 1. The things that are, that's chapter 2 and 3, these historical churches that existed at the time of John and those that are to take place after this. This would be chapter 4 throughout chapter 22 in the book of Revelation. And so a very simple, literal, chronological approach to the book of Revelation is the approach that I am taking as I take you through this wonderful book. And in Revelation chapter 3, we continue to see the ministry of Jesus in directly leading, teaching, correcting, discipling, encouraging, admonishing his church. And I think this is oftentimes one of the benefits of the gospel that we forget about in Christ. We so quickly think of Jesus as solely our Savior. But he is so much more than that. And he is truly the chief shepherd of the church. And we often call him that, that Jesus Christ is truly and really the senior pastor, at least we do in our fellowship. Uh, but here in Revelation 2 and 3, we have a practical example and illustration of Jesus living and ruling and reigning as the lead and senior and chief pastor and shepherd over the body of Christ. So we've seen Jesus so far speak to the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum, and the church in Thyatira. And today we have in chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus writing to the church in Sardis. He says in verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I think the letter of Jesus to the church in Sardis is one of the most sobering letters around specifically because of that statement i know your works you have the reputation of being alive people think that you're alive but jesus is the ultimate physician says but you are dead in other words a, a novice may look at you and think that they see the signs of life but as an expert physician i've looked upon you i've i've performed an autopsy, and you are very much dead. Now, the city of Sardis, as a background to this particular letter, was a wealthy city uh, right on the bank of a very prominent river. Uh, they had uh, a coin minted for Tiberius. They were a banking kind of city. They'd created modern coinage there. And so there was easy money to be found in this city. So very wealthy. But they were a very perverse city as well. Uh, a city that, you know, really was into a licentious form 
of life. Now, Jesus would say in, in verse 4 of this letter, he would say a phrase, he says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. In other words, it's as if Jesus was saying, Even in Sardis there are some of you who have been able to hold fast to your integrity. It was a dark and perverse culture that the church in Sardis had to live in. And so Jesus prescribes himself to the church quite simply as him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In other words, as I've told you before, as Jesus describes himself, he is actually prescribing himself to the ills and the errors that are found in each one of these churches. And the prescription that Jesus offers to them of himself is that he holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So he has the spirits and he has the stars. In other words, what Jesus is offering is life because this church was radically dead. <laughs> you know, they had a reputation of being alive, but the reality was that they were dead. I don't, I don't know if they were just simply dead yet orthodox you know, believing in faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone and scripture alone for the glory of God. Uh, but as much as they may have had that externally, internally, they were incredibly dead. They were like the Pharisees. They could pray long prayers. They would go a long way to win a proselyte. They would swear and uh, upon the temple and tithe unto the Lord, even down to the most minute portions of their spices but the inside of them was deadness, Jesus said, like a whitewashed tomb, clean on the outside, but full of dead men bones on the inside. And that was the church in Sardis. And so Jesus offers to them the spirit. He offers to them life. He offers to resuscitate them and to bring them back. And really, there's nothing else to offer someone who is walking in spiritual darkness and death. You know, someone who has perhaps believed the Lord, perhaps been orthodox in belief, but their life is so far from the Lord. Their life is just so dead and dark. And you look at their life and you realize there's a deadness here. And really, the only thing to offer them isn't a corrective word. There's nothing a person like that can do except to be resuscitated by God, to be given the Holy Spirit once, once again. And I think in that is... A wonderful picture of the reality of who the Holy Spirit is. Now, the word for spirit is the Greek word pneuma, uh, meaning wind or breath. And you might remember there when God created Adam and he breathed into him and, to, and gave him life. And that's the same idea of the Spirit of God coming inside of a believer, coming inside of a person. There is the breath and the life of God that comes into them. Jesus, after he rose from the grave, took his disciples aside and breathed on them and said, receive now the Holy Spirit. It's as if God was saying, here, you've been dead for so long. You've been the walking dead. Sure, I breathed life into mankind back in Genesis chapter 2, but, but here I'm going to breathe life into you once again and awaken you. And it's so sad that many Christians will believe in God in an orthodox sense. But then 
just have such a deadness in their relationship with God. No, no vibrancy, no life of the Spirit inside of them. And what we need is we need the Holy Spirit to reside within us. I remember being 18 years old and wanting so badly to walk with God. And it was through a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God that I really began to come alive. And I fear that I would walk away from the power of the Spirit of God and that I would try to live this life in my own strength. I I cannot. And I need the power and the grace of God's Spirit. I need Him for Acts chapter 1 verse 8, power to do the work that He's called me to do and to be His witness. I need Him for fruit to, you know, bear fruit in this world and to be a blessing in people's lives. And I need the gifts that come with the Spirit, the supernatural ability that comes with the spiritual gifts. And so Jesus stood before the church in Sardis and said, listen, you are dead and I can make you alive for I hold the seven spirits and the seven stars. Now in verse two, he has a very simple word of counsel for the church in Sardis, and it's simply this. He says, verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So apparently there was still some remnant of life. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. But the word of Jesus to the church is, Wake up. Uh, Some would translate this to, Be watchful. And literally it just means, Keep awake, be vigilant, be on guard. Now, this has a subtle double meaning here for the citizens in Sardis because in the fabric of their history as a city, they had actually famously been defeated twice for a lack of watching. Uh, The historical setting of their city was such that they were a perfectly defensible city. But twice, once with Cyrus and once with Antiochus the Great, they were scaled at night over their cliffs and taken. Because as a city, they were secure in and of themselves and were not watching. They were not awake. They were not vigilant. They were not on guard. And Jesus looks at this church and he says, wake up, be on guard, be sharp. And we ought to know that the enemy is walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy my life. And so because there is a devil, because there is temptation, because there are false teachers, and because Jesus is coming, there ought to be a sense inside of every Christian where we are watching, where we are diligent, where we are vigilant. And If that's the case, make sure that you don't allow the wrong things to enter in to your life. That's what it meant for the people in Sardis to be awake. It it meant that they were going to defend their walls, defend their cities, and they wouldn't allow the wrong things. They wouldn't allow the enemy to come in to their city. And so Jesus encourages the church in Sardis. He says, you need to wake up. You just need to wake up. And I don't know how many times I've talked to a, a believer, a Christian, who says the right things, they have their doctrine intact, but there's just a death in their life. There's a deadness in their life. I want to look at them and shake them. And I, I've actually done this from time to time and, and just say, wake up. 
You've got to wake up. You're, you're just walking in death and disobedience. You absolutely need to wake up and experience the Lord. And then Jesus says to them in verse 3, he says, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So a stern warning from Jesus. You know, remember the thing you received and heard. Keep that thing and repent. And, uh, you know, of course, the thing that they received and heard was the word of God. Paul said to the Thessalonians, he praised them because when they received the word of God, they received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And so the church in Sardis needed to remember that they had received the word as just as what it was, the word of God. And so he tells them to keep it and to repent. Yet in verse 4, Jesus actually has a word of commendation for them. He says, yet, verse 4, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You know, this verse stands out to me, at least in the age in which I'm living in, as an incredibly important verse and, and an incredibly timely and appropriate verse, because here they were in the city of Sardis, a dark and fallen city, a city that was incredibly wealthy and incredibly perverse. And uh, this is very similar to the city in which I'm living in, the community that I'm living in. Great wealth, great prosperity in so many places, but also a great perversion, a great love of, of sin and sexual freedom and lust and and uh, the worshiping at the at the feet of of false idols left and right and it's a difficult place to be a believer and perhaps you live in a place that is a difficult place to be a believer and Jesus says listen church in Sardis you actually have a few names even in Sardis people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy in the midst of this church, there were a handful of people, a handful of people who loved God and weren't willing to soil their garments. They would stand fast and stand strong. And, you know, I think that speaks to those of us who perhaps you're living in a difficult city, you're living in a difficult time, or perhaps even you look around the church in which you're living in and you see sexual sin, you see hypocrisy, you see deadness. And I want to encourage you with the reality that you still have the possibility of walking with God. You're not going to give an account for the people to your left and to the people to your right, but you're going to give an account for your own life. And hopefully, the Lord will look upon you and will look upon me and say, listen, even in your situation, you walked with me and refused to soil your garments. Jesus said then in verse 5, he said, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so 
He speaks of a great reward there for walking with him in Sardis. He speaks of spiritual garments, white garments. He speaks of having his name written in the book of life and, and actually being confessed by Jesus before the Father and before his angels. Now in verse 7 we move on and we have Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia. And this is a wonderful letter. It's a letter that has no rebuke, no corrective word. There are only two churches that received no rebuke. The church in Smyrna, the persecuted church, and here the church in Philadelphia. And I think that this is probably the church that all of us would like to be. He says in verse 7, he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now the city of Philadelphia was a, uh, a very culturally diverse city. Uh, it, had, it sat on the border of different nations and so it was easily exposed and influenced by the surrounding nations. Another element to Philadelphia is that in their history, they had experienced great earthquakes. And this will come in handy as, as a understanding in just a few moments. And there had been uh, moments in time where they had temporarily renamed their city. And so we'll see a reason for this, uh, the reason that I'm mentioning this in a few moments. But this was a part of the fabric of who they were as a city. And Jesus describes himself, verse 1, as the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And so Jesus describes himself as the one with the key of David. Now, keys were referenced in the description of Jesus in chapter 1, Verse 18, when, it, when he says that he has the keys of death and Hades. And because every other letter that Jesus writes, he includes a description of himself from Revelation chapter 1. It appears that the key of David must be in some sense synonymous with the keys of death and Hades. But this key actually is referenced in Isaiah chapter 22. There was this man named Eliakim who was the steward over Hezekiah's household. And he had the key that led to the treasuries of the king. So the key of David actually led to great wealth, great blessing, great provision. And Jesus tells the church that I have the key of David. And so the point that Jesus wants to make is I have the keys. The reason the church in Philadelphia needed uh, Jesus because he has the keys is because they needed the one who had the keys for the open doors that they needed to pursue as a church and as a ministry. That's why Jesus says in verse 8, he says, Behold, I know your works. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So the reason that Jesus points himself out as the one with the keys is simply because he's setting before the church 
an open door which no one is able to shut. And I've often prayed for this particular element in my own life. I've just said, Lord, you know, just like the church in Philadelphia, I'm praying that you would set in front of me a door that no one can shut. And I often pray the reverse. Lord, would you shut for me doors that no one, myself included, would be able to open? And so Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia, he says, listen, in front of you is an open door. In front of you is an opportunity for the gospel. Paul tells us in Colossians 4 verse 3, he actually asked the Colossian church to pray for him that he would have an open door for the word. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9, he spoke of a great and effective open door. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, he spoke of an open door for the gospel. And Acts 14, verse 27, is de- there's a description of an open door of faith to the Gentiles. So when you see in the New Testament the idea of an open door, what you're reading of is an open door for the gospel. And Paul tells the Philadelphian church, that there is an opportunity, an open door for the gospel for you. And uh, they were a city that had, and a church inside of the city that had an opportunity to preach the gospel. And I believe that the Lord gives us opportunities from time to time. Uh, I, I believe that our life, in one sense, is an opportunity, but there are moments in time where God blesses us with a chance. He blesses us with an open door. He blesses us with an opportunity. And, you know, we want to be a people who take that opportunity when the Lord presents it. You know, like Stephen in the book of Acts. Stephen was one of the first deacons, servants in the body of Christ. He was a man full of faith and power a man of good reputation, and he served the church well as a deacon, taking care of the daily distribution for the Hellenist widows and all of that. But a moment came when the religious leaders began to persecute, and they called Stephen to give account in front of them, and he took full advantage of the open door that was in front of him. And that open door led him to preach the gospel in in such an incredible and powerful way. And my prayer is that we would be a people who take the open doors that God has given to us. In that open door, the Lord spoke to the church in Philadelphia and he said, I know that you have but little power and you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Notice the little power or the little strength that Jesus refers to in the Philippian church. The Greek words are micros dunamis. You have a micro amount of dunamis power, but they had a little strength. And so the Lord said, go in that little strength of yours and walk through that open door. Now verse nine, he says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. We've already seen these characters uh, in the church in Sardis. Uh, those of the synagogue of Satan. They were uh, Jews who were persecuting the church. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet 
and they will learn that I have loved you. And so a powerful little word from Jesus. He says, listen, I know that you're being persecuted and these people, they will eventually come and they will bow before your feet and they will know that I have loved you. And I don't know when that moment would come, but I do know that there is a moment coming when every knee will bow before the Lord and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God. And I imagine that, that at that point there will be the settling of many accounts. I imagine that at that point there will be for those who have followed the Lord, those who have trusted the Lord, those who have been ridiculed and persecuted for their faith. I imagine that at that moment, although there will be great, great sadness, because of course we don't want to see anyone perish, and God doesn't want to see anyone perish, but to see all come to know him. But even though that's the reality, and that's, that's our heart of hearts, I believe at that moment there will be a, a deep sense of satisfaction in the sense that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will be true, he will be fair, he will be just, and at that moment there will be a great gladness that we've walked with God, a great gladness that we've trusted in him. And Jesus goes on to say, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You see here that Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Not, not that he would keep them through the hour of trial, but that he would keep them from the hour of trial. And I believe what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I believe that we will be called home to meet with the Lord and be kept from the hour of great tribulation. He says, verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus promises them that if they hold fast, uh, they'd have a crown, he says, hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. And then he says in verse 12, he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And as I said earlier, they were a city that had great earthquakes in their history. And so Jesus says, hey, listen, if you endure, you'll be a pillar inside of my heavenly house. And then he talks to them about a new name. He talks to them about the name of the city the new Jerusalem, and his own new name being pronounced upon them, written upon them, the name of God, the name of the city, and the name of Christ placed upon them. And this demonstrates favor that would be bestowed upon them, that they would be identified with Jesus for all of eternity. And what, what a glorious reality that for all of eternity we will be named by the name of Christ. We will have an identity in him and and in a world and in a culture where we are chasing identity left and right it will be so good to have that problem settled and squared away identified with Jesus and one in him
So Revelation chapter 3, the church in Sardis and the church in Philadelphia. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.